message this morning is about unnatural love, heavenly love. And uh, we're looking at these verses from verse 33 in chapter 5, down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Dealing first of all with the truth, loving the truth, and then uh, dealing with uh, those who who, uh, oppose us and hurt us, uh, loving mercy, and then finally loving those who persecute us, loving our enemies. Jesus is in uh, a great uh, sense responding to the the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law. And if we're honest, there's a good deal of the Pharisee in most of us. Uh, That's the case from when we are little children. And uh, you you may well be familiar with the way that children can uh, can obfuscate and try and get round uh, the truth when they are pressed. Here's a scenario. Uh, Mum arrives on the scene, finds two kids hammering out. I thought I told you two uh, to be uh, good to one another and not to fight. And there you are going hammer and tongs at one another. Oh, but Mum, you told us not to fight when you were in the shop and you're back from the shop. Now, you know, that's a kind of common scenario, the, the kind of getting around uh, instructions. But uh, adults aren't a lot better. And... To illustrate that, think of the way that many of us who are motorists regard speed cameras. Uh, Speed cameras are placed on roads to reinforce the rule that you are supposed to keep to a speed limit. 60 on the normal road, 70 on motorways and so on. But for many, speed cameras are simply a trap to be avoided. And so folk get uptight if there is no advanced warning of the speed camera. It's not fair. You know, they, they put the speed camera there without me having a chance to anticipate it. And many people look on the law of God as a series of speed cameras. The commandments are there simply as very visible warnings. So as long as you know exactly uh, where you need to slow down, yeah, you're free to accelerate uh, over the rest of life. And the Pharisees saw themselves as as walking, talking speed cameras. They were there to uh, highlight the the, uh, external keeping of the law, but really to provide ways of of getting round the real implications of the law. Uh, So, for example, they had hundreds, literally hundreds of of, uh, outworkings of what it meant to keep the Sabbath day. Uh, And in doing so, they avoided the the whole heart of the matter, which is that the Sabbath day is a day uh, to be taken up in the enjoyment of God and the service of others. They were great at finding loopholes. Now, the problem that many people have with the Sermon on the Mount, with its its rigorous uh, internalizing of the law, is that they think it's unrealistic. People say, oh, well, it would be fine to live in a world where everyone told the truth and where people turned the other cheek. But hey, that's not going to happen. It's a jungle out there and you have to stand up for yourself and you have to navigate the world uh, in the best way you can. So it's not really realistic. And 
what non-Christian people don't appreciate when they say something like that is that the Sermon on the Mount was never intended to be a, a suggestion of how people can live uh, isolated from a relationship with God. The Sermon on the Mount is giving us a, a set of interconnected, radically altered relationships. That's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> uh, but it's talking about changed relationships in three directions and they all mesh together. It's about changed relationship with God, first of all. That's why it opens with the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes speak about uh, someone who uh, is poor in spirit. They recognize they've got nothing to commend themselves to God, uh, who mourns for their sin, uh, and who seeks after righteousness. So somebody who knows that they're empty and has been to the cross of Calvary, who's come to Jesus and has found forgiveness and fullness. That person has got a radically altered relationship with themselves. They're no longer thinking that they're self-sufficient, that they're good enough. They're now uh, meek and poor in spirit, but they now have a radically altered relationship with the Lord God. And as a result of that, their relationships with others are different. Now, you can't uh, have the last part as a standalone you can't take the Sermon on the Mount and disconnect it from a, a radically altered relationship with God and yourself. The three are interconnected. So this morning we're going to look at uh, really a number of contrasts that are made between the Pharisees' very wooden and self-serving interpretation of the law and Jesus' radical uh, assertion of the fact that God is interested in the heart. God is looking at our inner motivation. God sees what others don't, and that's what is ultimately important. And he calls us to an unnatural love. To love the truth, to love mercy, and to love our enemies. Let's look then at the first one. We are to love the truth. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now, these are, uh, these are actually taken from different parts of the Old Testament scriptures, and they are underlining the importance of fulfilling oaths. Oaths were a, a regular part of biblical religion. And the, the purpose of an oath is to underline the seriousness, the importance of the promise that's been made or a statement that's been made. Now, when Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, do not swear at all, he's not implying that all making of oaths is wrong. For example, in our evening studies, we've seen that God himself uh, makes an oath. Hebrews uh, 6 verse 17 because God wanted to uh, make the nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And again, in our study tonight, we see that uh, cropping up again. But God himself swears by himself. Jesus broke his silence when he was put under oath by the high priest at his trial. 
Paul, in his letters, regularly calls him God's name as his witness. Romans 1.9, 2 Corinthians 1.23, so on. Uh, Jesus is opposing the use of oaths in such a way that they did the opposite for which they were intended. See, the natural understanding of keeping the oaths you've made to the Lord is be serious about the truth. Everybody should see that. That's pretty plain, but not to the Pharisees. They had taken that. I keep the oaths that you made to the Lord. And they saw, well, that implies that, you know, the oaths that are made in the name of something else may not be so binding as an oath that's made to the Lord. And so there were all of these lesser oaths that were being made which were less binding. Jesus gives some examples. Woe to you blind guides. He says later on in, in Matthew's Gospel, you say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. So you see what's going on there. To, to avoid swearing by God, which they said would be binding, they have all of these different kinds of oaths which are less binding, so they thought. Uh, so they would say, I swear by heaven that I'll finish this job on Wednesday because they knew that there was a fair chance that they wouldn't finish the job by Wednesday. Or I swear by the hairs on my head that this is true. And again, they weren't particularly sure that it was true. And so it's a less binding oath. You see what's going on? Uh, swearing by God uh, is to be taken seriously, but you can make oaths in other ways, which allows you to wriggle out of the implications of telling the truth. All these alternatives can be tracked back to God. That's the stupidity of it. You know, the, the temple is God's temple. God even is the God who can make the hairs of your head black or white. You can reduce their number. He is the God who uh, is ultimately watching over his truth. So Jesus moved next, having showed the folly of the Pharisees' uh, strategy, is to bring back uh, the teaching on oaths to its original purpose. Seriousness in regard to telling the truth. When you say yes, let that be seriously meant when you say no let that be seriously meant anything beyond that stems from the evil one the desire to kind of tell uh, lies in a subtle way is devilish the devil is the father of lies the devil would want to see Christians become subtle in their approach to the truth and we ought to be known in all of our business, in all of our relationships, as people of the truth, people who are committed to telling the truth, regardless of whether it hurts us or not. There, there are hosts of, of different illustrations for, you know, the kind of white lie or, or, or telling what appears to be the truth whilst deceiving. You know, the, some semi-comical illustrations of secretaries at work that are briefed by their bosses to, to fob off uh, people who might inquire, you know, so the phone goes 
and the secretary simply repeats the response she's been given. Uh, he is on a course, or he's over at the Greens. And, you know, in a sense, that's, that, that uh, you know, is telling the truth, but he's actually playing golf. Uh, the truth is buried in that. Uh, he is on a course. He is over at the Greens. But the intention is to, uh, to deceive. Uh, it's playing subtle with the truth. And our, the test of our integrity as Christians is that we're willing to tell the truth even when uh, it hurts us. So that goes right across the board, doesn't it? It goes in, in terms of the, the businessman uh, who fills in his tax returns uh, that he has to be careful in telling the truth. Uh, the employee who fills in the timesheet Right down to uh, kids at school who, when are at, they're asked, have you done their homework? Uh, we are, if we are God's children, to reply. Uh, whatever is true, no matter what the consequences are. God's children are to be people of the truth. We are to love the truth and we are to hate a lie. Next section, uh, loving mercy, is one of the best known sections in the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly one of the least understood Lots of people tend to think that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth uh, characterised Old Testament ethics. And Jesus has come in and uh, he said, oh no, that, that was all wrong. And he's replaced it with uh, a different uh, moral standard, which is to turn the other cheek. And so they set the Old Testament off against the New Testament. An eye for an eye... And a tooth for a tooth is a quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth of the Old Testament books, Pentateuch. What did it mean in the Old Testament? Well, it was saying that if someone had caused injury, the punishment must fit the crime. An eye for an eye. Now, we need to hear that in our day, don't we? Because there's plenty of instances in which, uh, where we see that uh, people get off uh, with a punishment which is not suited to the crime. Think of, think of the way that uh, people who perpetrate rape, for example, uh, and ruin uh, the life of a, of a woman can get off relatively lightly at the hands of the court or a murderer given a lighter sentence than someone who steals a vast sum of money. Now, there's something wrong with, with that kind of sentencing. And so the principle here is that the punishment should fit the crime. But there's also a second reason for it in the Old Testament, and that is that the, the punishment is to be limited. The judgment is to be limited. So if someone was in a fight and the assailant knocked out his truth, his tooth, then the, the punishment should not exceed the equivalent of a knocked-out tooth. You don't cut off the hand of someone uh, as a punishment for knocking out someone else's tooth. Because that's how violence escalates, doesn't it? You know, people always want to, to stir up one more ratchet in order to show them so that they will learn the lesson. You know, you scratched my car, 
I'm going to burn down your shed, you know, the, the, the way it goes. And an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is supposed to stop that escalation of uh, vengeance taking. But also in the Old Testament, the principle was one always in the context of a legal proceeding. It's not uh, telling people uh, that they are permitted to go out and to take revenge on their own account. And that was what was wrong with it. People had made that interpretation. They looked at this verse in the Old Testament and they had said, I am permitted to exact revenge uh, for something which is done against me. If you take my eye out, I'm permitted. No, I'm commanded to take your eye out. And they were pressing their rights to the most unwarranted extreme. And Jesus in challenging this contemporary interpretation, is taking us to the heart of the matter, which is the question of the Christian's rights. The question, the practical question for us is, do I always have a right, or an obligation even, to press for my own rights? Jesus is saying it's often more glorifying to God to be willing to give up your rights to accept being ill-treated. Jesus' teaching is challenging the way that we are conditioned, really, from the cradle to the grave. We're always being told that, that we, have, we have rights which we should accept. Now, it's part of being... Uh, a strong person to demand your rights. Therefore, somebody slips on a, a wet surface in a supermarket, they have a right to sue the business. Uh, somebody uh, says something uh, in press about somebody else, and a sharp response is immediately sent in reply. Now, when Christians get engaged in that kind of activity, when they, they, they seek redress, when they are looking for uh, some hurt because of hurt given, what is the impact on the cause of God's kingdom? It's very easy to say that you're standing up for the truth or that you're doing this on behalf of other people in other situations. You hear that often when, when, uh, when people you know, go to great lengths to win a huge amount in the courts because of a wrong. They say, oh, I'm, I'm doing it on behalf of other people in similar situations. Well, uh, they, they're not doing too badly at the whole process either. And others rightly look on and see that here is someone who is preoccupied with the principle of revenge and self-interest rather than love and service. And Jesus is teaching, us that, is teaching us that love is not preoccupied with self-interest or revenge or our rights. That our first concern should be for the cause of Christ. And that is always advanced by love and compassion to the other party. And we may win the other party to Christ by the very act of refusing to take up 
what is legally, you know, maybe morally ours. Better to lose your rights that you might serve the kingdom than assert your rights. Now it's important to, to see the kind of big picture before looking at the illustrations which have often been uh, picked up and you know, made to run on all fours. Jesus is speaking about interpersonal relationships. How we deal with other people. And some people have looked at this and they've, they've made, made it uh, address situations like uh, armies and law courts and so on. For example, Leo Tolstoy, probably uh, well known uh, for coming to uh, a pacifist position and even thinking that uh, law courts themselves uh, were, were forbidden. Uh, in his book, What I Believe, uh, he wrote that Christ totally forbids the institution of any law court because they resist evil and even return evil for evil. But Jesus isn't speaking about resisting in time of war. He's not speaking about resisting on behalf of a third party rather than yourself. He's speaking about how you respond to someone who treats you wrongly. Someone who struck you on the right cheek. Uh, presumably he is striking you with uh, his right hand. And so it's often pointed out that in order to strike you uh, with his right hand on your right cheek, uh, it, was a, it was a strike with the back of the hand, which was perceived to be a very uh, serious insult. And the only redress for such an insult in Jesus' day was to go to court. And Jesus is saying, no, turn the other cheek to them. In other words, he's saying that, uh, he's not saying that we should attract suffering, you know. Uh, he's saying that we should rather forgo our rights than alienate somebody else and close the door to a healing of that relationship. The world expects people to be motivated by self-interest. When the world encounters the Christian who shows no appetite for self-interest or asserting his rights, then the person sits up and takes notice. There's something remarkable about this. Second illustration Jesus gives is of someone who has an enemy pursuing him with a lawsuit. He wants to take his tunic. Uh, we might say that he wants to sue him for the shirt off his back. And Jesus makes it clear that your peace is not found in your possessions or in your rights. Let him take it. Let him even take your coat. And the significance of coat was that a coat was sacrosanct under Jewish law. If a man took somebody's coat as a pledge, you know, he had lent money and needed a pledge that the money would be returned. He could take somebody's coat, but he had to return the coat by nightfall. It's one of these details in Old Testament law where the compassion of God is, is seen. Jesus says, don't even stand on that right. Make it clear to all that the gospel liberates you from standing on your own rights. You're freed to give up. Third example is the acceptance graciously of something that was deeply exasperating. Uh, the Roman soldiers had a right to compel people to carry loads. An example was 
of uh, at, when Jesus is going to the, the cross, the crucifixion, uh, he's staggering under the weight of his cross. He's made to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. And the soldiers compel Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. And this was a fairly typical example of the you know, Romans just asserting their rights as the overlords. Christians should be willing to render assistance even if it inconveniences us and even if it's asked for in a disrespectful manner. We're not to stand on our rights or our dignity. Now, some people have argued that these illustrations show that Jesus is saying you should never stop injustice. You should never resist uh, wrongdoing. But that's not the case. Jesus objected when he was slapped in his trial. Paul resisted Peter. Uh, and it's the same verb in Greek uh, that's used by Jesus here. That's used of Paul resisting Peter to his face when he was uh, hypocritical uh, in Jerusalem in regard to uh, you know, uh, sitting with uh, non-Jewish people or not sitting with non-Jewish people. Paul claimed his rights as a Roman citizen when he was imprisoned in Philippi. And sometimes for the good of the other person they must be resisted. Sometimes it is right to refuse to give money when asked by someone for all manner of reasons because it may feed a drug habit or a drink habit or it may be unhelpful in some other way. And what is our rule for deciding uh, how we judge the case? It is the rule of love. As Christians, our relationships with others are radically altered by my understanding of myself as a sinner and my understanding of God as my Redeemer. If we are passive in the face of violence or injustice towards ourselves, then it's in order to keep that door of opportunity open for restoring a relationship with our opponent. Our motive must be love. We're not to be motivated by the desire to assert our rights. At the same time, we're not called to be doormats in the sense of being objects for others to mistreat. Remember, Jesus was hardly a pacifist when he took the scourge and overturned the tables and drove out the money changers from the temple. Or when he spoke to the Pharisees of their hypocrisy and spoke of the coming judgment. But it was love that led Jesus to go quiet as a lamb to the slaughter. To fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who peeled out, pe pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus is our model. That in love for another, we do not resist. And in love for another, we resist. Love mercy, love finally your enemies. Jesus drives the point home uh, in the last section on loving our enemies. And again, uh, the point at issue is a misinterpretation of the Old Testament text. Uh, you are to love your Neighbour, but hate your enemy. Now, the first part is there in the Old Testament. 
You are to love your neighbour. The second part is not in the Old Testament. The second part was added by the Pharisees. And they had deduced from the first part that you are obligated to love your neighbour, but by implication, you weren't obligated to love others. That you could hate your enemy. And Jesus turns it on its head and says you're to love your enemies. Now, just as it's not remarkable in the world for people to assert their rights, it's not really remarkable in the world to love your friends. John Stott has said, everybody believes in love. But not love for people who have injured us. It's not an easy thing, but it's our calling. Now, this is, you know, the, where the rubber hits the road is when we actually particularise it and we think of people who have been, you know, nasty to us because of our, our Christian profession, people who have opposed us, or simply people that we find very irritating, people with whom we have personality clashes. Think of someone like that, bring them to mind, and then bring that person to the Lord. And ask the Lord to help you love him or her. Jesus says that we are to pray for them. Pray for that individual person. Ask God's blessing on them. And that's where it's unnatural. The world loves its own. The world loves its friends. But unnatural love, the love that the Holy Spirit brings cause us to love our enemies, cause us not simply to live at the level of the world, but to live at a supernatural level. And in doing so, Jesus says, we show ourselves to be children of the living God. God's love is astounding. Here's the point here. God loves those who are against him. He provides for them. He sends his sunshine on them. He provides rain that their crops might grow. Think of the, uh, the, the people who are so vehemently against Christianity. The uh, people, uh, they're kind of going out of favour somewhat because they've over-egged their case, but the, the so-called super-atheists, Hitchens and Dawkins and so on, God provides for them. In his mercy, God is giving them the things that they take for granted in sustaining their lives. Astonishing. His sunshine lightens their days as much as it does those of believers. And you and I are to prove the saying, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. We are to display that kind of unnatural love which is shown towards those who despise us, speak against us, even injure us. An unnatural love which is willing to be vulnerable even when we are abused by the other person. The unnatural love that Jesus showed when he prayed for every man who had flogged him and who had put nails into his hands and his feet and who hung him to the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. There are plenty of examples of kindness in the world but most of it is in the form I am there for my friends. Or, you were kind to me once, I can be kind to you. Does that describe your acts of kindness? Because if so, if they're limited 
to those types, Jesus is saying, what are you doing more than others? In our attitude to the truth, in our attitude towards those who hurt us or inconvenience us, and in our attitude to those who persecute us, God has given us his Holy Spirit. That we might live above the natural and show unnatural love. It's not about me and my rights, it's about the kingdom of God and about those whom God is calling into his kingdom. Who are watching your life. Therefore let us reflect God. In all our actions. Amen. May God bless to us his word.